Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. And this is London, but coming to you, of course, all over the world. Thanks to the wonders of the Internet, as a local terror attack was not foiled, but cut short by anti-terror police who were actively surveying a terror suspect and shot him dead this afternoon on a street where I used to live for nearly 20 years. In fact, exactly 20 years and only a couple of hundred yards away. And so, as I watched the story unfold this afternoon, it was of personal importance to me. Here's what seems to have happened. Two plainclothes officers were keeping this man under active surveillance. He went into a shop. He stabbed at least two people. And just outside the shop, the police shot him dead. So four marks uh, to the security services. This was someone, obviously, that needed to be under active surveillance. No doubt there will be questions as to how this terror suspect managed to stab two people, one of them reportedly seriously. It's low rent so far as terrorism goes. It's not exactly the Twin Towers. It's not exactly hijacking airplanes. The suicide belt was a fake one, just like the London Bridge one. But it does show that in our midst, we have people who are nursing their wrath to keep it warm and are ready to murder absolutely innocent people in Streatham, on Streatham High Road, ready to murder. For what? What was in the mind of this evil, wicked terrorist who now, thank God, lies dead. What was in the mind of Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu when they unveiled what they called the deal of the century, which has gone down like a lead balloon everywhere? The Kremlin described it today as a breach of international law, United Nations resolutions. The king of Saudi Arabia told the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, that the position of the kingdom had not changed and would not change towards the Israel-Palestine conflict. No Arab leader has supported it, although three Arab ambassadors were present for its unveiling. I don't know if the two uh, authors of the plan had a ball and chain around their collective ankles. One of them is indicted on serious corruption charges the other merely impeached and on trial for his life until 24 or so hours ago. The plan takes away the whole prospect 
laid out in the Oslo agreements of a two-state solution. You could argue that that two-state solution was already dead before the deal of the century was even half written. 600,000 Israeli settlers in the very territory that was supposed to become the Palestinian state, according to the Oslo prescriptions, have put paid to any possibility of that. It seems to me, as someone involved in this subject for a very long time, that the parties would be better going to Moscow than Washington because it's abundantly clear that Washington is on one side of this conflict. Whereas Moscow, Russia, Putin, Lavrov have leverage and credit in the bank with both sides of this conflict. The relationship between Russia and Israel is close, if a little vexed from time to time, not least when Israel is shooting down uh, Russian airplanes. But as could be seen at the commemoration of the liberation of Auschwitz, Russia has enormous moral standing amongst Jewish people everywhere in the world, and including in Israel. The best thing would be for the United Nations Security Council to return to this subject and stop allowing American freelance operations to undercut existing international law, existing United Nations resolutions. We'll be talking to a, a venerated uh, expert on this subject, the editor of Middle East Eye, David Hurst, in just a few minutes' time. As I said in my introduction, the entitled classes of Britain are sobbing this evening into their wine and whining about the passport queues that they're going to have to stand in, they think, when they go for their next skiing holiday in Gestad or Saint-Tropez for the summer or wherever it is that they are going. Right until the end, the Waitrose Brigade, the soft shoe shufflers, with their wafts of cologne and chiffon scarves have not come to terms with why, how Britain voted for Brexit. There was an article in the BBC website this week lamenting the fact that there has been a dramatic fall in the number of foreign au pairs available for hire to the entitled classes in London. I thought that story summed everything up. And I'm grateful to the great trade union leader, Paul Embury, for pointing it out to me on Twitter. Now, there's other issues, of course, going on in the world beyond Brexit and the Middle East. Brexit is a British issue, a European issue, but it's also an American issue because the plan clearly is, and you saw it in the presence of big Mike Pompeo, coming over like a member of the family, the Sopranos, coming over to uh, put the shoulder on the British government when it comes to future relations between our two countries. I want to make this clear because some people willfully misrepresent it. I have absolutely nothing against the American people. I broadcast to the American people six days out of seven every week. My great-grandmother was the only woman in history, surely, 
to emigrate from America to Scotland in the 19th century. Some say she got on the wrong boat, but that's exactly what she did. So I have American blood in my veins. Many of my greatest heroes of sports and culture and music, acting, film, and so on are American. Some of the greatest people that ever walked the earth, and we'll be talking about the Hall of Fame later, were are Americans. So it's nothing to do with enmity towards the United States or its people when I say to you that it is not taking back control by leaving Brussels and turning to Washington. It is not taking back control to become the 51st state of the United States of America. I fought for Brexit. I'll always be proud of the role that I played but I did not fight to Brexit from the European Union in order to enter the United States of America. We want a special relationship between Britain and the United States, just not the kind of special relationship that Miss Lewinsky had with President Clinton. Do you get me? So we'll be talking about that. We'll also be talking about freedom of speech. How could it be otherwise when I with 345,000 followers on Twitter. Some of you are watching this on Twitter now. If some people have their way, you won't be able to do that for very much longer. And 345,000 people will not be able to follow me because I will not be on Twitter. Uh, the people who are roaming around, it's a kind of troll factory identifying one target after another after another and doing everything that they can to close them down, shut their mouths. In fact, there's a hashtag saying, shut Galloway down. Well, here's a message for you. You will never shut me down. As I said last week, even if you kill me, you will not shoot me down because my words will merely take wings and fly farther and higher and reach more people, even if you did. If you put me off Twitter, I'll go somewhere else and I'll take a lot of people with me. Now, it may have been idle boasting on the part of the troll factory. It may have been. Early signs are that there's nothing to worry about. But when people with blue ticks dedicate themselves to shutting me down, it's not about me. It's about my message, my analysis, my narrative, which you may or may not agree with, but want nonetheless to hear. Because if you don't question more, if you don't listen more to more sources of information and analysis, how are you going to come to proper informed conclusions. So the, the issue of freedom of speech, I think will probably be one of the themes of this whole show, as will the subject of forgiveness. We'll be talking in the second hour to Matthew Goodwin, the doyen of political scientists, the man who's analyzed everything correctly throughout the Brexit saga. We'll be talking to him about what goes beyond Brexit. And we'll be talking to a working class poet of note. Now, it's not a small thing to be a working class poet. 
there haven't been many working class poets. We remember Robert Burns, we've just passed his uh, annual commemoration. In Scotland, it's big. In Russia, it's big. In parts of the English-speaking world, it's big. Robert Burns was a working-class poet, a man with a plough, a man working the land, a man with no money but words. Oh, what words. And I was thinking of just some of his words when I was thinking about our guest in the third hour. This is what Robert Burns said on the occasion of a national victory. It was a thanksgiving commemoration thrown by the established church in England to thank the Lord for a national victory in arms. I don't know which national victory it was, but given the period of history in which it took place, it was unlikely to have been a glorious one from my point of view. This is what Robert Burns, the working class poet, said. Ye hypocrites are these your pranks to murder men and gee God thanks. Halt, desist, go nay further. God'll no accept your thanks for murder. I've got an update for you now on the developing story in South London tonight. It is regarded as a terrorist-related incident in Streatham. A man who was shot dead in the street on Streatham High Road at around 2 p.m. this afternoon was wearing a hoax suicide device around his waist. The Metropolitan Police have just confirmed this information about the incident, which has left two people with stab wounds. One person is now said to be in a life-threatening condition tonight. Security sources are saying this is a terrorist incident and thought to be Islamist related. The attacker is believed to have stabbed a number of people before armed police shot him dead outside Boots on Streatham High Road. The suspect was under surveillance by counter-terror police and armed metropolitan officers moved quickly to surround him, ultimately preventing him from stabbing more people because they were following him. There's very, very serious uh, questions, of course, raised by all this. Uh, it's in no way churlish because I absolutely commend the swift action of the anti-terrorist officers who shot this uh, evil, wicked criminal dead. Uh, I absolutely commend the uh, efforts of the security services and the police who are trying to protect innocent civilians. And that's a key point. They're protecting innocent civilians. I lived there for 20 years. I've been in that boots 500 times. My own wife could have been in there this afternoon and could have been stabbed by this man. So all of us have to uh, acknowledge, support, and admire the swift work of our security services. However, if two armed police officers were following him, the question does arise how two people, at least, were able to be stabbed by him. And to say so is not churlish and is not in any way to dishonor or disrespect the officers concerned. 
It's wonderful that not more people were stabbed, but one of the people who was is now in a life-threatening condition. So there will be questions about that. But the bigger question is how many of these people are living amongst us? How do we divert such people from reaching this phase of fanaticism, of extremism? How do we stop young people ending up dead on the street with a knife in their hand and a fake suicide belt around their waist? How many of these people are under close surveillance? Are enough of them under close surveillance? Should more of them be under close surveillance? Have we got enough and enough of the right kind of intelligence officers, of anti-terrorism officers? These are all big and important questions. Uh, Buzz Goyminton uh, says the only solution is a clean break, cut all ties. Then you have the freedom to negotiate a trade deal. It's not rocket science. And old Codger says, I feel the EU have abused us. We deserve better, and so do the other European countries. And Lily Belladonna says, we need a deal that protects jobs and workers' conditions, that maintains freedom of movement and access to programs such as Erasmus, that maintains environmental standards, works collaboratively to establish climate change. Well, Lily, uh, you'll be uh, pleased that the Labour front-runner for the Labour leadership, Sir Keir Starmer QC, has uh, endorsed your message. He wants to bring back freedom of movement of cheap labour from East and Central Europe, whether we're in the EU or not, imagine. Now, that's a point of view. Uh, that uh, might look sensible if you are one of those suffering from the shortage of foreign au pairs, if you are lacking a Slovakian barista to uh, dish out your macchiato quickly, efficiently and cheaply and look good while doing it. That might seem sensible if you're a user of cheap Eastern European tradesmen and women, a joiner here, a builder there, a glazier, a plumber, that might look good if you are one of those who has benefited from our 47 years of membership of the European Union. But the problem is you've only got one vote, the same vote as all the many millions of people who will not be queuing in the passport line at Gestad for a skiing holiday or at Saint-Tropez for a summer holiday who will not be hiring an au pair this year, at least, and who have to do these fiddly jobs around the house themselves or find a mate's rate somewhere locally to do it. You see, it doesn't look so good if you're amongst the millions of British workers whose wages have been driven down by the oversupply of cheap East European labor whose conditions have been adversely affected, who can't get access to public services because of the pressure on those public services caused by this bulge in population in certain places. 
places that have already been devastated by a decade, more than a decade of austerity since the crash of 2008. And that's Lily's message there. In a nutshell, sums up the tale of two Britons. A Briton where easy and quick access to the skiing slopes and the beaches of southern Europe where access to unlimited cheap European labor. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Is more important than the suffering of post-industrial, desertified post-industrial Britain. That's the dividing line, Lily. That's what gave us a red wall, Lily. That's why the red wall fell down, Lily. Can't you see, even now, can't you see? Why do you want freedom of movement? Is it because you love Bulgarians? Because I love Bulgarians. I love them so much, I want them to stay in Bulgaria and build up Bulgaria. I don't want to leave Romania's health service in ribbons, in tatters, because all of the Romanian health service workers have exercised their freedom of movement to come here and work, making life better for me, but worse for the patient in Romania. Can't you see, Lily, even now, after all these years of arguing these things and listening to what I've been saying, you still can't see what's wrong with so-called freedom of movement? What's wrong with it is that it is a capitalist wet dream. Think about it. When I was a trade union representative in another lifetime, if I went in to the boss with certain demands and the boss could say there are thousands of people out there, outside the gate, who'll work for less than you. How dare you ask for more? Can't you see it's a simple ABC matter of economics? And don't imagine that it has anything to do with race. First of all, a Bulgarian is exactly the same race as me. And if you want to talk race, it's people that are blacker and browner than me that are locked out of the European Union. Can't you see, Lily, 
that you have pursued this liberal chimera all this time and all this way and still you can't see anyway look we've got uh, uh, another newsman a young newsman as opposed to a veteran on the line it's patrick christie's to talk about this brexit uh, question patrick thanks for getting through to us that's all right george anytime now i've been saying all night i suspect you'll have noticed it too the mood of those who opposed Brexit has, if anything, grown uglier since Friday night at 11 o'clock. They, they they've gone into overdrive uh, in their caricaturing of the Brexit majority in this country as thick, northern, racist, etc., and crying into their wine about the uh, passport queues that they expect to be in very shortly in Gestad. Have you noticed that? Well, what I will say is that I think that most of that has been online. I was at the uh, Brexit Day thing at 11pm on Parliament Square and I was expecting there to be protests and there actually weren't any. And I think that there weren't any because people realise that if they turn up in person, they look like idiots. They've lost the argument and they're three-time losers. They've lost the general election, they've lost the EU election and they lost, of course, Brexit as well. And I think you will see a lot of the kind of Twitter monsters that are out there, fine, OK, but in person, I think there's a different tact. And actually, what I will say is that I do think now that anyone who's against it is fundamentally against public opinion now, OK? They realise that they've positioned themselves wrong. They've lost the argument a few times and if they go against it now, I think they just look stupid. So I would expect there to be a little bit of vitriol initially, but I think fundamentally right now a lot of people realise that even if they lost their argument there, they have to get on board, otherwise they just look a bit stupid. But this uh, Keir Starmer, uh, the front-runner for the Labour leadership, uh, he has accepted, I think, that we've left the European Union, but he wants to reintroduce free movement of cheap labour, whether we're in the EU or not. How's that going to fly? Well, and with respect, George, as somebody who myself personally does not vote Labour, I hope that he does stand on that ticket. Why? Because I don't think he'll ever get elected at a general election. I mean this with absolute respect. I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the way that the last general election result went. A lot of people are scratching their heads. Why did so many working class northern seats vote Tory, even though it must have pained them, even though it goes against what their grandfathers would have done and their great grandfathers would have done? Why? Because the cheap movement of foreign labour was something that was actually a detriment to the working class in this country. Country. And I think that if he wants to persist with that kind of line, that's absolutely fine, but he's going to have a very short tenure as Labour leader. Now, Patrick, finally, what about the, uh, this fishing uh, war? Uh, I've just been talking to Ron Mackay about it. That looks like the first battleground, doesn't it? The EU insists that they can continue to industrially troll our waters for our fish. And if we don't allow them... Uh, the deal might be off. What I would say about that is, first and foremost, the European Union talks a lot about environmentalism and the way that they fish, not just in our waters, but worldwide, is very environmentally unfriendly. They use a lot of electric shocks and things like that, and that is awful. What I would say as well is that Boris Johnson's rhetoric about improving the north and improving, you know, northern areas, well, one easy, quick way to do that is to give us our fishing waters back, and you'd see that, frankly, and I mean, no offence to people living in some of these areas right now, but fishing towns in the north of England that have turned pretty desolate 
Scotland. And Scotland, and Scotland, and Scotland you're yeah. right. You're absolutely right. And Scotland as well. That, and especially when it comes to Scottish independence, by the way, George, what's one of the best ways to win a few percent, and it will be won or lost on a few percent, is to return some prosperity to those areas. If the EU wants to play hardball over our fishing waters, and I'm very sorry, but again, I think they're on a hiding to nothing. And I think that no deal becomes more likely. And I think that actually they'll be end up uh, regretting the fact that they took such a hard stance on what is actually British sovereign territory. And you think Boris Johnson will stand firm? I do, and I think that, like him or loathe him, I suspect loathe him, Dominic Cummings, uh, I think he's a numbers man, and I think that the second it turns out that actually the British public are, in a way, feel offended by the European Union's policy, and the second that happens in big numbers in polls, I think that actually we will see a strong no-deal stance, and I think they'll be able to portray it in a way that the British public can get behind. But then it is up to us to make sure that works. Now, when are you broadcasting these days? Are you, are you on the morning show now, Patrick? I am. I'm doing the, uh, the, the, the slightly later graveyard shift of 6.30 till 10 a.m. on Love Sport. I am, yes. 6.30 <laughs> till 10 a.m. So you're up, what, at the crack of dawn, really? I'm up, I'm up at the crack of dawn, absolutely, George. And yet yes, we've I'm... kept you up this late and you're still firing on all cylinders. Thank you well, very much thank you. indeed. Thank you. That's Patrick Christie's of Love Sport Radio. Let's take a quick break. I'm sorry, it's been a bit of an unusual show tonight in that we have not been able to get the advertised guests on the screen or you on the phone. But I hope you think it's still been worthwhile. Certainly, the huge number writing to me on Twitter and by email is not diminished in any way. Uh, it's meant that I've had to speak for longer, so I'm hoping that the guest who's in the studio with me now will do plenty of talking. Uh, so that I don't have to, not least because he is the funniest, the most powerful, the most coruscating working class voice I have found for many, many, many years. We're talking uh, the authenticity of uh, Billy Connolly, though Billy was from Scotland and Chris McGlade is from Redcar, Middlesbrough, Teesside, an area not quite as glamorous. Uh, Scotland, but he's a working class man and he's with me now. You are a remarkable man in you, many man. ways, Chris. You're a steel worker who became a comedian on the circuit, the pubs and the clubs. And then you ended up at the Edinburgh Festival talking to the uh, massed ranks of the culturati of Scotland and England that go to that Edinburgh Festival and you're about to make your West End debut in Soho, in the Soho Theatre. We'll get all the details up on the screen. Uh, and you speak, I heard you yesterday, in the vernacular, warning to the international viewer, this is not received pronunciation. <laughs> this is not how the royal family speak, but it's worth persevering. In fact, if I now lapse into my vernacular and talk to Chris in his... None of you outside these shores will know what we're talking about. So we'll do our best to make it palatable uh, to you. Your writing is about life as seen from the working class in post-industrial areas mm -hmm. that have been devastated, desertified by public policy, by the EU, mm and the economic system that it represents. Mm -hmm. in, a, in a way, it's a cry from the heart of these communities that you make, isn't it? It is. Our, our 
area's been devastated by... I mean, our steel industry's gone. Our, the, the closed our blast furnace, and I think it was 2015, which just devastated Redcar. And when you close a blast furnace, that's it. You can't, you can't rekindle it. No, it, there's, there's been talk of, being, of, of trying to get it started again, but I think it's all just like pie in the sky, to be honest with you. So your community was devastated basically over the last 30 years. Yeah, that's how long... That's how, I mean, I used to work at Cargo Fleet Steelworks in Middlesbrough. And, um, and I got finished in something like 1984, something like that, 1984, So that was early in the Thatcher Revolution. Yeah, I, I, I started at British Steel when I was, like, 16 as a, as a junior stock taker at Cargo Fleet Steelworks on the hot banks. And um, I was there. I've, I, I, I always remember at school, my English teacher was saying, you're, like, you're Oxford or Cambridge material, and I used to laugh at him, right? Because I've, I've always like, managed to put myself down all, all my life. And, um, and I started in the steel mills when I was 16 years old. And uh, to be honest with you, I, I wouldn't have had it any other way. I wanted to go to RADA. I wanted to go to, to drama school and all this, you know. And I kind of had a bit of a resentment, the fact that I, I never made those places. But when I've thought about it, especially when I wrote Forgiveness, I, I, I kind of cast my mind back across my life and the relationships and the things that I've done going into the steel industry and then ICI after that before I became a stand-up comedian. I wouldn't change those things for anything. No, because they, just like Connolly, they, they gave you the material that you turned into comedy, didn't they? Or well, the, the, the people you met, the things you did. The kind of... You wouldn't have been that funny if you'd gone straight to Radha well, the, the, at 16. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, but it's also the people, the people that I met and the friends that I've made, you know? Um, people go on about Liverpool being a, a funny place, and it is a funny place. My old fellow always used to say to me, like, you know, um, humour was ad born from adversity, and, uh, and I agree with that. But, like, there's been adversity in Liverpool, and everybody concentrates on Liverpool as being a funny place. Middlesbrough and Teesside is so funny, do you know what I mean? There's that much humour there. People are it's, it's, it is, virtually is one of those situations whereby if you don't laugh, you cry sometimes, you know? And, uh, and I wouldn't have changed my, my life growing up through all of those things and meeting those characters and the people in my area, uh, you know, it's, it's part of who I am. Let's turn then to forgiveness. Um, let me paraphrase. Mm. Somebody murdered your father with his bare hands mm. and then set him on fire mm. and you've forgiven them. Mm. Not many people will understand that. Okay, so uh, it was in 2011 and I was in Billy Elliot. In the, in the West End, uh, and um, my father had a friend who was homeless. He was alcoholic, he lost his job, he didn't have anywhere to go, and he went round to my father's house wanting somewhere to stay. And uh, my father said, yeah, OK, then you can stay here. And that's as much as we know for certain. Uh, the stuff that came out in court was... An argument started, he wanted money for drink or wanted more drink and Dad wouldn't give him any money so he strangled Dad for five minutes and then uh, robbed him, set his body on fire to cover his tracks, make it look like Dad had had a cigarette in bed or whatever. Went off to Tesco 24 to get some more alcohol or drink. Came back, checked that the fire was going and off he went. And. Um, I mean, we found out the following day on the Saturday that Dad had died. 
we thought that it just at that time the police were just telling us it had been a house fire. But I mean, I went to the house, so I drove over to my father's house, and it was like that scene from ET where they've got the plastic tent over the front of the house and these people in white suits and masks and all this, you know, and it didn't look quite right to me. And then we found out the following day that he'd been murdered. And then it's a strange thing. My father was a very reverent man. He was a very un-PC man. But he had a massive heart and a massive capacity for laughing and, and the crack all the time, you know? And the police... He was Irish, right? <clears throat> well, he was, the, he was the, the grandson of an Irish immigrant. Mm. And, uh, and Dad, Dad never took anything seriously. He was always ribbing people all the time, but it was, it was always done without malice. There was never any malice there, even though some of the things he said were outrageous. And when the police on the Sunday came to the house, I was in our conservatory, and four of the biggest detectives you've ever seen in your life came into the house and said that, you know, your father's been... Murdered, he was strangled and he was set on fire and I broke down and then... And I won't spoil it, cos I don't think if, if people want to come and see the show... I, when I came right, um, I looked at the conservatory win window and I, I cracked probably the most un-PC joke that I've ever cracked in my life. And I started to laugh. And the look on the policemen's faces was unbelievable. These detectives couldn't believe I was... I'd, I'd told this joke and, and, and it was in the moment and I was laughing and my wife at the time said, it's just his way. And, and it was just my way, but it was also my father's way as well, you see. And in that moment, I just felt him all the way down my right-hand side. And he was with me and he was saying, that's what you do, go on, give it some. Don't get offended. And how quickly did they find the murderer? Uh, they found him within a day, because he was sleeping rough. <clears throat> he murdered Dad on the early hours of the, of the uh, Saturday morning. And by the early hours of Sunday morning, uh, they found him asleep in a lay-by in his car, drunk. And that's how, that's how they got him, you see. Did he plead guilty? Uh, well, he did at first. Um, he admitted that he did it. And, I mean, this was one of the worst days of all in court. Because, like, certain days in the court trial, you know, I was there for the full two weeks, but there were certain days that were worse than others. One of the worst days was they had a massive television screen there and they, sh and they showed the footage of the interview uh, in the police station. And for like, maybe, it was, it was like a four-hour tape. And, and, then, and then, after all, maybe three hours, 20 minutes, they asked him something and he just said, yeah, I killed him. Yeah, I strangled him. And it was just like, oh, yeah. It's just like, you know, it was like nothing. No remorse? Uh, <clears throat> there didn't seem to be at that time. I've got to be honest with you. And, and, and in that... Because remorse is necessary for forgiveness, isn't it? Well, I suppose... It would be for me. Well, it wasn't for me. Because I knew... You see, I believe that the, the, there's a force of darkness and there's a force of light. And they vie, I believe that they vie for people's free will all the time. And I think that force of darkness took hold of that man on that night. I mean, I've, I've said this to a couple of people, but I've likened it to, to almost like that scene from The Exorcist, where the priest comes in to the room, the young priest comes into the room and finds that this possessed girl has killed the, 
the old priest, and she's laughing and cackling on the bed, and he gets angry, so he, he starts to, to attack the young girl. And then he's on top of her, and he, and he, and he says, well, come into me, and, and that force of evil comes into him, and he's about to, to strangle the young girl, and he throws himself out the window and, of course, breaks his neck, and the policeman comes down, and he said, you want the last rites? And he says, no, I want to take this to the grave. And that's what I wanted to do. And I felt the only way that I could end that darkness and stop that darkness from spreading out anywhere else in that moment was to forgive. And do you... I mean, it's within your rights to forgive the man that murdered your father. Mm. But do you advocate that for everyone? Do you, do you advocate that we should all forgive? However heinous I think the actions of others? It's a very personal thing. And I, and I couldn't tell anybody to forgive because it has to come from within. I might get emotional here and I can't help it because it, it is such an emotive subject. But one of the proudest moments, and there's been a few proud moments since I wrote Forgiveness. Uh, I did a preview of Forgiveness in a club in Middlesbrough called the Westgarth Club. And two people travelled all the way from Milton Keynes, over 200 miles. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colours, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. To come to Middlesbrough to watch this show of mine. And one of the people, this lady, her cousin had been murdered, stabbed however many times. And after the gig, and the gig's full of laughter and it's full of tears and it's full of poems and it's... It's full of everything. After the gig, she said to me, you started me on that road to forgiveness. And that was one of the proudest moments. Because, you see, when I wrote forgiveness, I just wrote it basically as a eulogy to my father. I wrote it trying to pay homage to his life and to what he was as a man and to what he believed in, you know? And to all those working-class stories that I grew up with and I wanted that I wanted to be a voice for that too so for the very fact that this lady had traveled with a, a partner 200 miles and watched my show and felt as though I'd started her on that road to forgiveness for me it was just like mind-blowing you know and and that was that was uh echoed through the Edinburgh Festival it wasn't just people who'd been who'd suffered murder, there were people who'd suffered uh, loved ones committing suicide, taking their own lives, so there's somebody who had uh, suffered murder, came at the Edinburgh Festival. The people who came to the, the preview of Middlesbrough, they're now coming again to, to uh, the Soho Theatre in London to see it, with another couple who've also suffered murder. And my, I mean, when I, my ambition when I finished Edinburgh would, would be to fill a massive theatre with people who'd suffered 
and I was seeing not just murder but suicide or, or any kind of grief or, or in any way that where people had done them wrong and get them all to laugh and laugh together and laugh at each other and hopefully try and get them to forgive as well. So it's, it's cathartic, it's therapeutic in your view? Well, it has been for me personally. I mean, I, listen, I mean, I, I've had, since it happened in 2011, I mean, I've had a certain amount of mental health problems, you know, or not, if you want to call them mental health problems, I've, I've had to deal with, with depression and stuff like this and the old black dog, you know. And I've had to have counselling through the Homicide Victim Support Group and uh, last year, last March, I was kind of like a bit of a guinea pig because they tried out this new therapy called TIR, Trauma Impact Reduction. And, uh, and I went down to Bradford with, uh, to the Homicide Victim Support Head Office and, 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 and we, we did that. And it was like open-ended, there were no time limits or constraints upon it. And I was there for six hours and there was all kinds of stuff coming up, do you know what I mean? And that was and that was great for me, but doing the show, it's kind of like put me back in touch with my dad. Yeah. How how do you turn it into a show? You you said that there's lots of laughs and oh, there is. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've read the reviews, uh, and yet it doesn't seem like a laughable subject. Right. So is that that's your comic genius, really? Well, when I right, so I fought this political campaign in Redcar. In two, uh, from like 2006 to two, uh, 2004 to 2010. And when I finished, uh, I went, and I went through all kinds of torture. That, but we, we beat our council and Persimmon Homes in the House of Lords and, and, and changed the law in this country. And we uncovered potential corruption and all this and that and the other. And, and, and we scattered the protagonists to the four winds. And then I got the part in Billy Elliot, and, and then halfway through the contract, Dad was murdered. And from that moment, there was like, I'd, I'd changed as a man. If you, know. I've gone through all this thing, with with campaign and and then Dad's murder, and I was like like a crazy thing on online all the time, looking. I, I couldn't stand the thoughts of injustice and hypocrisy and and corruption and all of this. You know, I wanted to understand why men or women did wicked things. Do you know what I mean? And I went on online one time and I. I found this study, I think it was written by a Jewish guy, and it was about humour in the death camps, and how these poor people in places, evil places like Treblinka and Auschwitz, Sobibor and these kind of places, still found it within themselves to laugh at their situation. And they made jokes about their situation. And I found that, like, fascinating, you know? And when I started writing Forgiveness, I was kind of like in the same position because I felt as though there was a message there to take out to people. Mm. But I'm a comedian. <laughs> That's what I do for a living. And so what I tried to do was I tried to amalgamate that working men's club style of comedy where I started in, in Redcar and Middlesbrough and Teesside. I tried to amalgamate that with the, the more thought-provoking, metropolitan, liberal, talking heads kind of comedy. Yeah, that's going to be uh, quite a big leap. Well, you've already made it, actually, in, at the Edinburgh Festival. Mm. Uh, the Edinburgh Festival is as far away from a working man's club in Redcar as the Soho Theatre uh, is going to be. you nervous in any way about facing a West End crowd? I was more nervous coming here tonight. <laughs> <laughs> no, See, I, I've I'm... seen you perform. You perform with such power. 
uh, I'm sure you're going to blow them away. When does it start? How do people get tickets? Um, I am at the Edinburgh. I'm at, sorry, I'm at the Soho Theatre from Wednesday, the 26th of February. 26th of February, yeah. Wednesday. Wednesday to uh, Saturday the 29th, inclusive. 29th. Three nights, Four nights in the West End. There Four, is, there's Four your, uh, oh, there's the poster actually yeah. on screen now. Soho Theatre, Chris McGlade, Forgiveness. It's a rather fetching uh, poster picture, that one actually, Chris. I think he's been airbrushed in I certain I think he's been a wee bit there. <laughs> 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 Claire, Claire, Claire Grogan did, though. She's a top-class photographer. Not Claire Grogan, the singer. No, no, no. no. She, has, she has the same name. Fantastic. Well, I'm definitely going to be there. I hope you are. 26th of February to the Saturday the 29th. Mm, and where, where does it go after that? Well, this is the thing, you see. When the promoter saw it uh, at the Edinburgh Festival, and I'm, this sounds immodest, I've never been immodest in my life. I just tell it as it is good or bad, but when the promoter saw it in Edinburgh, he was absolutely blown away. And he wanted, or he wants to take it on tour. But the, the, the problem with that is, I don't have a name to sell tickets. So we're, we're, trying, to sell the, we're trying to sell the shows in the Zoho Theatre, and hopefully we're hoping that that generates interest from other people and other, and other places, so that we can then take it out. Yeah, well, everybody didn't have a name in the... In the beginning, they all made their name. Yeah, but I've been going 32 years, George. <laughs> yeah, but they don't know that. <laughs> but I've been, uh, in, the, in the very short time that I've known you, uh, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that there's a huge international, not just national, market, not just for forgiveness, but for the style of, of invective and rhetoric and humour that you have managed to... Uh, to meld together. Not bad well for a together. Lad. Not bad for a borough lad from the steelworks. Chris McGlade, I'll see you at the Soho Theatre. Shall I do my poem? Do you want to do a poem? Oh, I'm always up for your poems, please. Okay, so this is, I wrote this poem, uh, this is something I've just, I've, this wasn't in the Edinburgh Festival, but I've decided, especially after what happened this afternoon in London, in Streatham, because I think the world's a mean place. Oof. Absolutely. And I think everything, everybody is stirred up. I think, the, I think the press, to a large degree, stir people up and, 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 and play people off against each other. And I think that the, the whole country, the whole world, needs a bit more forgiveness at this moment in time. So I wrote this poem. It wasn't in the, featured in the Edinburgh show, but I've tried to put it in for the Soho Theatre, and it's called Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Trips off the tongue like a lovey, doesn't it? But it's not so easy to do for most. Forgiveness. The art of lifting yourself above pain inflicted and never giving up the ghost on your ability to bear your soul, be human, to show that you have heart. Forgiveness. Take it. Oh, I've messed it up, sorry. I'll have to do it. Forget it. I was going great, then all of a sudden my heart started going. My AF kicked in. It's a great poem, but just forget it. It's, it's forgive. It's, it's, I'll it's, forgive you. Forgive for, me. I'll forgive, forgive you forgive for me, forgetting George. your lines. And I know that you won't forget them. No. On the uh, 26th. 26th to the 29th. 26th to the 29th of February in the Soho Theatre. <laughs> Chris <laughs> McGlade. Give me another go. Let me have another go at it. Yeah, go on. Have you, have you remembered it? Yeah. Hold on. Forgiveness. Trips off the tongue like a lovey, doesn't it? But it's not so easy to do for most. Forgiveness. 
The art of rising above pain inflicted and never giving up the ghost and your ability to bear your soul be human to show that you have heart. Forgiveness. It's never an ending. It's only ever just the start of allowing yourself to be at peace and accept life's warmth and love. Forgiveness. To fill your days with laughter, you only have to rise above. Forgiveness is a key to unlock a door of hope and bring your spirit truth. Believe me, forgiveness is the way for all of us. And I am living proof. Fear not any shame or ridicule. Fear not hate or spite. Still forgive the ones who do you wrong and sleep sound and deep at night. Let forgiveness cast off your shackles of anger and doubt. Be tormented by dark angels and grief no longer. Allow yourself to forgive someone and let's all make this broken world much stronger with forgiveness. There you go. Brilliant, fantastic. I look forward to seeing you in the Soho Theatre. Thanks you very much. You put me off there looking at Chris me. Chris McGlade, I was looking at you too longingly. <laughs> Poll number two. How long did your New Year resolution last? A, a week. B, a month. C, still resolving. You can vote now on my uh, Twitter feed. The man who was shot dead by armed police attacked three people with a knife and he's just been named as Sudesh Aman. That's S-U-D-E-S-H, second name, Aman, like the city, A-M-M-A-N. It's been widely reported now that he had just been released from prison after spending time for terror offences. He was under active police surveillance at the time of the attack, which police believed to be an Islamist-related terrorist incident. He had a hoax device strapped to his body. Three people were injured, with one person still in a life-threatening condition. In the last hour, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has said the government would announce further plans for fundamental changes to the system for dealing with those convicted of terrorism offences tomorrow. Didn't he say that after the London Bridge attack? Just saying. Didn't he say it would be an end to early release for terrorist prisoners? This prisoner was released halfway through his sentence, just like the last attacker on London Bridge, according to the information reaching me. Gunshots were heard on Streatham High Road just after two o'clock this afternoon. Reports suggest a man entered the shop and started stabbing people. It appears he then left the shop and stabbed a woman. These big, brave, Islamist fanatics shouting their Allahu Akbar, stabbing women. Witnesses reported hearing three gunshots and seeing a man lying on the ground outside the Boots Pharmacy as armed police approached and shouted at those nearby to move back. The attacker had been re released from prison at the end of January, that is three days ago after serving half of his three-year sentence. How do you get a three-year sentence for a terror offense? And how do you get out halfway through a three-year sentence for a terror attack? This is unbelievable, this. And Boris Johnson did say, I'm hearing in my ear, at the time of the London Bridge attack, that there would be no more early releases 
for terrorists. And this guy gets a three-year sentence and gets out after 18 months and he's out three days and he's stabbing people in Streatham. Women stabbing them. And thank God for those armed officers that were there. Otherwise he'd have stabbed many, many more. Ah, I'm furious about it, actually. Chris, have you got a graphic of my book that I was talking about earlier? Can you put it up? Just so people can see it, it's very beautiful. That's it. My debut novel, Queensway. You can get it, info at georgegalloway.com. Thanks for that, Chris, I appreciate it. That's three, four, unsold. Uh, Lord Manchester said Sinn Féin had the first woman MP, indeed, Constance Markovic. Uh, she refused to swear foul blood oath to unelected monsters. It's funny, the, uh, the person they always put up as being uh, Britain's first woman MP uh, was not actually Britain's first woman MP. Britain's first woman MP was Markovic, the Sinn Féin MP. Uh, Mr. Gossamer, again, Ireland should think about joining with the UK in a trade deal. Get out of the EU and embrace self-determination. Well, that's a matter for them. Monetizing dissent. Is George arguing for free movement of capital and goods and restrictions on workers? Not very socialist, is it? Actually, no, I'm not arguing for that. I'm actually against allowing capital to be exported. I'm not in favor of free movement of capital or free movement of labor. It's quite simple and it is quite socialist. George Maxwell says the SNP are like the biased broadcasting corporation. They rely on somebody else paying for them. Uh, emails now, uh, this one from Mike B. After the list of homegrown terrorist attacks by mainly individuals from young men with extremist views, I believe it can be mainly traced back to Blair and his close friend, neocon George W. Bush. Had there been no total annihilation of various Middle Eastern countries and many, many innocent, unnecessary deaths, these atrocities in our streets would be at least lessened if non-existent. Uh, I don't believe that, Mike. Uh, of course, uh, our foreign policy has massively enraged and radicalized large numbers of people. But there are people who would have been radical and extreme whether we had followed that foreign policy or not. Germany didn't attack Iraq, neither did France. But innocent civilians in Germany and France have equally been mercilessly attacked by the same kind of people. It's Far too formulaic, what you've said. It's a contributory factor, no doubt. And MI5 predicted that it would be to Tony Blair before he did it. Dame Eliza Manningham-Buller, the then head of MI5, told Tony Blair that there would be an increase in domestic terrorism if he did this. I told him many times and rather more forcibly than Dame Eliza did. But that's not the whole answer. In any case, that woman on her bike outside Boots and Streatham High Road that was stabbed today had nothing whatsoever to do with Tony Blair and his foreign policy. It is a sin. 
It is a sin in any religion, a crime in any language to hurt, maim, murder innocent people for the crimes of guilty people. James in Dundee said, it's hard Brexit all the way. Europe are running scared. They need us more than we need them. I think more countries will follow suit and leave, but personally, I couldn't care. I only want what's best for Scotland and the UK as a whole. Rod says, looking forward to the book, never mind the man in the high castle, George is the man on the high horse. <laughs> Very good. Thanks, Rod. Corbyn's absolute first priority when he became Labour leader should have been to reform the Labour Party from a neoliberal Blairite party back to a socialist working class one. Instead, he buried his head in the sand and ignored the threat from the Blairite quizlings until the Blairites manoeuvred Corbyn into an electoral death trap, U-turn, on Brexit which clearly Corbyn only did as yet another act of appeasement for the Blairites. But if he had purged them, he would never have had to appease them in the first place. And this, says Dave, I will never forgive Corbyn over. Uh, George says, I'm sorry I missed the Workers' Party launch in Birmingham, but I hear there's going to be an event in Cardiff soon, so I'll definitely be there. Uh, I just wanted to say that this unsubstantiated attack on you by the troll factory to get you removed from Twitter is an absolute omni-shambles. Who are they to dictate who can and can't have their say on social media, a medium designed to promote open discussion and debate? I don't even remotely agree with Katie Hopkins, but I do believe in free speech and not censorship. Letting celebrities dictate who should be censored and banned is a really scary step towards an Orwellian nightmare. This is around the same time that Elizabeth Warren announced she's embarking on a campaign to tackle disinformation. Why is she an authority to trust on information? The Ministry of Truth delivered to you by the woman who just got wrongfully accusing Bernie Sanders and who lied about our CV and heritage. Anyway, wish you all the best. Thank you for that, George. Gary from... Newport says, I was very impressed to hear that China built a hospital within eight days, but the question arises, is it built with the stringent building controls that we use in the West? I have my doubts. Gary, get out of here. Have you been in a British hospital recently? Stringent building controls? My goodness, man. I cannot believe this kind of thing. I just heard on our own news that the Chinese had failed to build their hospital in five days and that it took them 10. Have you looked at the HS2 project, which is already years behind schedule and double the price, 100 billion pounds, years behind? If this outbreak had happened in Britain, the health service I heard about yesterday from Dr. Bob Gill would already have collapsed by now under the pressure of it. And don't get me started on the United States where they don't even have a health service at all. Will in Singapore, six against competition, 57 places below them in one cup. Knocked out despite winning in the other cup three days later. Against competition, their own size. No wins in three. Whose head should roll, George? Ollie, 
Woodward or the Glazers. All of them, I say. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has won 10 Premier League games in 10 months. Dear George, loving the show as always, I can't help thinking that you were twinned on Twitter with Katie Hopkins for culling purposes by a group that includes people who agree with Katie Hopkins and who had traduced Corbyn and yourself to give the appearance of fair-minded denial of free speech. It backfired. Don't you love own goals, says Tony Getliff. I do. I quite like them. How long did your New Year resolution last? A week, 24%. A month, 9%. Still resolving, 67%. Uh, not sure I believe what the cops tell me. Remember that Brazilian guy they murdered? Get out of here. He's just been released three days ago from a terrorist sentence of three long years, cut to 18 months for good behavior. Neil Williams, amazing how people say religion is the problem when by far the greatest destruction and terror on earth is caused by capitalism. People take the bait so easily. And Wesley Mank says, the loons were active terrorists while in Syria and Libya but we called them moderates, didn't we? And Rico Rodek says, I haven't paid a TV license for 15 years. Mike in South Carolina says, after Labour having lost in the UK, Bernie Sanders could certainly benefit from your endorsement in the 2020 election. Please give him your endorsement while it can make a difference here. Well, I've been supporting Bernie Sanders since 2016, and I'm fully behind him now. White Patrice says the British destroyed the Middle East with the Sykes-Picot and colonization, and George Galloway blames the United States for the legacy of their wretched government. No, the British did destroy, with the French, uh, the Middle East with their Sykes-Picot agreement. The problem is the Americans are making the Middle East even worse than Sykes and Picot. We thought it was as bad as it gets to have 23 artificial Arab states not only failing to cooperate with each other, but oftentimes cooperating against each other. We thought that was as bad as it gets. What Donald Trump and previous United States presidents, all of them, have done is to make that bad situation even worse. New Scotland TV, MPs have private security and special police numbers. Why would they care if domestic terrorism increases? Fear and war makes them money. Well, I had no private security and no special police numbers when I was an MP. I was hospitalized when I was an MP in the street for my political views. That's why I'm wearing a hat, don't you know? I was hospitalized and the parliament did nothing about it. Maury Mack says, the fact that these guys get out but not Assange tells you all you need to know about the people who control us. And Maury Mack says, has the Chinese hospital got Grenfell cladding? Probably not. Quite so. Uh, with regards from Slovenia, I've emailed to your show before and still wish to remain anonymous. Congratulations on finally achieving Brexit even though it wasn't done the way you'd like. But it's a victory nonetheless. Let's hope the other EU nations leave before the entire charade collapses. 
For the Hall of Fame, I'd propose two candidates that I'd reckon are close to your heart. Fidel Castro and Che Guevara, the icons of the Cuban Revolution. They both deserve a place in the Hall for proving to the world that there can be an alternative to neoliberal imperialism and giving hope to the poor, suffering and oppressed, that they too can forge their own path forward. With regards from Slovenia, thank you, uh, Slovenia. Uh, the Hall of Fame will have to be next week now, uh, but I promise you it will be. And it will be twinned with another item, the Wall of Shame. So we're taking nominations for the Hall of Fame and also for the Wall of Shame. My friends through the glass didn't get the graphics together efficiently and quickly enough. Paul V says, you mention it in passing, but what's happening in France is truly extraordinary. Now the firemen are on strike and marching, and the scenes of police and firemen fighting in the streets are like medieval battle scenes, plus clouds of tear gas. Can you invite someone from France to talk about what's happening and how Frexit may be part of the outcome? It's a very real thing there. I had a taxi driver in Antibes in late 2018 who couldn't wait to tell me all about it once he realized I was English. All the best for battling in without phones. Trust me, everyone who watches weekly is rooting double for you this week. Thank you. God bless you, Paul. We did have a yellow vest guest few weeks ago, uh, let's uh, try and get another to update us. Robert Stark says, I wonder if George would care to discuss the Glasgow effect, whereby the excess mortality cannot be explained by ordinary correlation with indices of deprivation, etc. I tried to call, but the line is busy. Interestingly, one hypothesis concerns the way that football has come to dominate the lives and identities of males. I think this theory may have been disproven. There's a growing body of work on it now in Wikipedia entries, etc. Robert Stark. There's no hope for me then if football dominating your life is uh, an inhibitor to long life because not only me, but all my sons are completely obsessed by it. Orators and men of conviction are rare in our times. George is such a man. He's often vilified, but there's a reason because he's a very unique individual who's a politician with integrity and compassion for humanity. Articulate, thoughtful, assertive. He speaks what he believes, no matter what personal attacks are aimed at him. He will always be the man to stand up against the establishment and make them eat their own words. He speaks truth to power and has infinite personal character and integrity. A Twitter ban will not silence his intelligence, sharpness and eloquence from reaching those who care about humanity. John, God bless you for those wonderful words. Thank you. Uh, indeed, Dave in Birmingham says, I'm a stable fan of yours always on a change of theme. What's your take on Mike Pompeo and his sudden friendship with President Lukashenko and Belarus? Is this development really about oil? Or as I suspect, is this far more a political strategy game? Dave, I was thinking exactly that same question. What was Pompeo doing, the first American contact with Belarus and Lukashenko for many years? What is he up to? I'll probably find the answer next week in Moscow. And Alina says, this uh, brigade, now grown into an, an army, determined to patrol 
and have jurisdiction upon, upon free speech worries me sick. And this from a non-religious white European pacifist, 57-year-old woman. I cannot begin to imagine the grief and fear minorities are experiencing, and whoever is not seeing the parallels with 1920s Europe needs to give their heads a good shake. And Harjit from Hounslow says, I was one of the three pounders and later 25 pounders who joined the Labour Party in order to vote for Jeremy Corbyn. Should I part with another 25 pounds to vote in Rebecca Long Bailey and put the same effort behind her? Would she really be a continuation of Corbyn? Your advice, as always, will be much appreciated. Well, it's not really my business, Harjit, but you've tempted me into the fray. I knew Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn was a friend of mine. Rebecca Long Bailey, you're no Jeremy Corbyn. To be fair, you're not even pretending to be, but even if you did, you would not be able to do so. You are at best a mini-me, Jeremy Corbyn, with less to offer, less political fidelity, less ability, less strength. The Tories and their media would tear you to pieces. You are out of your depth as a candidate for leader. I've never met you. I have no animus towards you. I know that many good people, most good people, in the Labour Party are supporting you. But I am entirely, entirely unconvinced. And so, Harjit, I wouldn't part with the 25 pounds, if that's what it is, because... I think that election is already lost. I think that Sir Keir Starmer has already won the Labour leadership. And I don't say that because it's in my personal political interest, although it is, because I'm the one on here that pleaded, beseeched, demanded that Ian Lavery stand for leader, which was the diametric opposite of my own political self-interest. Don't forget that now, because there are some of you Corbynistas that like to forget that which is not convenient to how you're feeling right at this moment. I was the one who said only Ian Lavery could match up to Jeremy Corbyn. And if he did not stand, then the Labour Party would go back to the future. New, new Labour is on the way. Sir Keir Starmer will bring back, trust me on this, Sir Keir Starmer will bring back Chuka Amuna and Luciana Berger and all these that deserted Labour and stabbed it in the back. All these that went off and became Tigs and then Liberal Democrats, they'll all be back. All of them. Even big Mike Gapes of Arabia will be back. Labour under Starmer will be new, new Labour. Tony Blair's picture will be turned back to face the room. Starmer is Blair. Less polished, less good, but the closest thing that they could get to Tony Blair. And he's going to win. So what does that tell you? I think there is no point 
in anyone who calls themselves a socialist, staying in a Labour Party led by Sir Keir Starmer. It's just me. It's just the way I feel. Are you listening? Says mine was to love my, my here's, this is his New Year resolution. Mine was to love my wife more than last year. A hard resolution to keep. Katia's Compass says, I made a New Year's resolution not to make New Year's resolutions about 20 years ago, and I've never broken it. Jane A says, well, I did watch three minutes of fake news this weekend on the BBC, but that will hopefully be my last outing, George. And the Good Apple Club said, I did not make any New Year resolutions. All Dirt says, I never do them. They never work. I prefer having them throughout the year, but never in January or February. Winter time is too depressing. Anyway, that's actually a very good point. Andy says, I'm still resolving a resolution. Debbie Wiles says, I was waiting for the Chinese New Year, but they cancelled it. I guess I'll keep smoking until next year. I, <laughs> I made 20 years ago. Well, the Chinese did cancel their New Year meaningfully, uh, but they have gotten to grips with this virus with astonishing power and strength. No country, no other country in the world could have done that. Human says, well, my resolutions are mostly related to the incidents happening to me. Honestly, I don't think of resolutions from the Gregorian perspective. Ooh, very, very, very impressive. The Gregorian perspective. Uh, Simon says, we saw Chris McGlade's show at the Edinburgh Festival in 2017 and 2018. They were absolutely brilliant. He's a great man, as are you. Look forward to the shows this month. Thank you, Simon. I'll tell you, if you go and see Chris McGlade at the Soho Theatre, you'll thank me for encouraging you to do so. I promise you that. Corbyn's absolute first priority. I've done that one. That was from Dave. Uh, this one is from Michael Cardos. I recently switched from Labour to the Workers' Party of Britain, as I believe our interests will only be fully represented with the comrades I have found there and their experience from the working class. I was a Remainer and now I'm a pragmatist and will work to make Brexit successful. That's all we're asking from everybody, really. We're asking from everybody that whether you were for or against Brexit, that you try to make the best of Britain. Of course we've got a government that many of us don't prefer. Of course we've got institutions that are misfiring and are letting us down. Of course we have a political and media class that is oftentimes atrocious. But this is for Britain. We should be buying British. We should demand governments that will invest and buy British, invest in Britain, will refuse to take back control from Brexit only to hand it to Washington, that will refuse to invade, occupy, sanction other countries. A Britain like the one I talked about in my short that we played in the first hour. A better Britain, one that we can be proud of. Now, it'll take time to get there, but we, all of us, can make a change in ourselves. We can become that little bit more 
thoughtful and patriotic. If we can, let's spend in Britain. Let's invest in Britain. Let's work hard in Britain. Let's try and make our country the best thing it can be. We have the chance to do that now. We haven't had it for 47 years when we were ruled by a system and by people that we did not choose, that we did not elect, and we cannot refuse. I'm not a flag-waving kind of guy. My flag is red rather than red, white, and blue. I'm not one of these scoundrels who blow the patriotic trumpet to try and march you into a fake cause or a devastating war. I'm not one of these people, but I do believe in our people. I believe in what Tyler and John Ball, the leaders of the Peasants' Revolt, I believe in the Chartists. I believe in the pilots of the Royal Air Force who saved us in the summer and through the winter in 1940 and 41, without whom we would have been overcome, overrun, and I would have been speaking to you tonight in German. I believe in Britain. Let's be the best of the British.